Well, church family, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Thank you, choir. Our desire is to know the Lord better, and that's why we read the scripture. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 is our text this morning. God's word says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... A marvelous picture of the grace and the mercy that the Lord Jesus Christ extends to the most stubborn, violent, aggressive, opposed, hard-hearted rebels. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we would recognize that the same grace and mercy he extends to Saul on that day on the road to Damascus he offers us on this day in Rocky Mount. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. And uh, we have here before us uh, a text of Saul's conversion from hard-hearted rebel to willing and mightily used of God, ambassador of the gospel. So I'll go on and summarize my whole sermon for you in a statement, and it's a simple statement. And can I just tell you on the front end that I knew we were coming up to Saul of Tarsus and his conversion to Christ, and I really desired that uh, perhaps, and, and this is the arrogance of some gospel preachers like myself at times, is I really wanted an insight in uh, maybe that you had not heard before, or maybe I'd be able to articulate in a way that you had not heard before. But here's, as I continue to study this and study this, uh, again, no audible voice. It's just almost as if the Spirit of God said, why don't you just tell them the main point, and it's this. The grace of God is strong enough to transform the hardest heart. That's what this text is about. The grace of God is strong enough to transform the hardest heart. You want to talk about a hard heart, this is Paul's own testimony later on in the book of Acts. He's going to be arrested. He's going to stand before the Roman emperor. I'm sorry, not the Roman emperor, but Agrippa, a a governor there. And here's a few of his own words, friends. It's what he says. I persecuted the way to death, 
binding and delivering to prison both men and women. What he says in Acts 22, verse 4. Same speech, he says, The high priest and the council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in, in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. That's who Saul was. A couple of chapters later, Acts 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So friends, how did this happen? How did it happen that this man, of his own witness, a man of raging fury, becomes the great champion of grace? How did this man who once tried to stop the name of Jesus from going forth in Jerusalem, became the man most responsible for taking the gospel unto the nations. How how did it that the one who stood by watching approvingly as Stephen was violently struck down is willing himself to be struck down, if need be, for the furtherance of the gospel? How did one who sought to silence witnesses become the author of Romans? Now, again, allowing him to speak for himself, I think he summarizes it, in 1 Timothy 1.13, in a very simple statement, and I want you to hear it. Four words. Here it is. I was shown mercy. That's what Saul says. That's what Paul says. This morning, let's take a moment to look at when Saul was shown mercy and the great results that it had in his life. Again, the grace of God is strong enough to transform the hardest hearts. It might be true in your own life that you've got a loved one, a family member, a spouse, a child, whose heart appears to be as hard-hearted towards the things of God and the gospel as could possibly be so. Can God transform their life? It might be that some of you, seated in the sanctuary this morning, you have a hard heart, towards the gospel. Can God transform you? The answer is yes, and the means of him doing so is extending you grace and mercy. It's not quite where we find Saul. He's not a willing witness of Jesus in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. If we get the context here, we're picking up where we left off last week. There's this great conversion, isn't there, last week? That, in fact, I want you to contrast where the gospel finds the Uh, Ethiopian eunuch with Saul just here at the beginning. You remember the Ethiopian as a man of great humility. He's he's traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. He's interested in the things of God. He's got a humble spirit. He's willing to be, he's he's teachable. He's got this great posture to God to say, if I need to be corrected in any way, correct me. And then Philip comes along and shares the gospel and uses Isaiah, uh, uh, this great prophecy of one who will be led to the slaughter like a lamb and will be silent. Of course, a great prophecy of Christ going to the cross to be crucified for sin. That's not his own, but but mine and, and yours. And then right in the midst of all that good news and that glorious conversion, we come to verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, you see, this is what the author Luke is doing. He's contrasting. Not everything was 
so, so marvelous in those days. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder <clears throat> against the disciples, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, he's asking for his jurisdiction, if you will, to be expanded. I want to go from this state to that state. I don't have jurisdiction there, but high priest, if you give me some letters, I'll go there and do what I've been doing in Jerusalem. And Saul's blood is boiling for all his efforts as he watches the church continues to expand, right? I mean, we've studied, we've seen his plan. The initial outbreak of persecution, here's what they thought. If we just rough them up a little bit, if we're violent towards them, all this Jesus talk, all this Jesus stuff, it'll quiet down once they see that we're really serious. So the persecution was designed by the opponents of Christ to stamp out their movement. But what happened instead? Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered, oh, verse 3, probably a better place to start. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed in the prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The Christians did not respond in the manner their persecutors anticipated, did they? Said if we just make it uncomfortable for them, they'll stop their preaching. But rather than lay aside their convictions, their persecution actually just fortified their faith. And friends, that's what happens to all authentic believers in Jesus. The persecution doesn't get them to compromise, it just fortifies their their faith. So Saul's plan, it seems, is to double down, all right? So he says, well, round one didn't work. Let's increase the intensity and the scope of the persecution. So his plan is the gospel's spreading. Let's try to get ahead of it, and we'll tamp it down uh, before it continues to expand. So he wants to go from within the boundaries of Jerusalem and get ahead of things and goes to the high priest. He asks for orders. He wants to go forth and imprison any belonging to the way. Does anybody see the irony here? Luke's pretty gifted at irony as he uh, observes life. Saul goes to the high priest, wants to go forth and imprison any that he finds belonging to the way. But you see, there's a true high priest, amen? There's a real high priest. And, and, and Saul's going to confront the real high priest, and everything's going to get turned upside down, right? So Saul uh, wanted to go forth and imprison any belonging to the way. But the real high priest says, well, Saul, I'm actually going to use you to proclaim the way, the truth, and the life and unbind all those that need to hear the gospel. And Saul does not know what great darkness he's walking in until he sees a great light. It's true for all of us. We don't realize how dark we are until we see the great light. Got three real simple points. Point number one, life in rebellion against God is difficult. This is a simple point. Life in rebellion against God is difficult. Now, we read in Acts 9, it seems on first reading that this all just happens instantaneously, right? Very suddenly. But I believe that God had been at work in Saul's life for a long period of time prior to the moment of his conversion. Now, his conversion does have elements of it that are dramatic and instantaneous but according to his own testimony there had been something going on in his life and at this point I do want you to flip if you're in Acts 9 
Flip over here with me to Acts chapter 26, and we'll read verses 12 through 18. Now, when we flip over to Acts 26, we flipped over several years. This is a long time after Acts 9. It's actually fairly close to the end of Paul's life. He's been arrested and now is giving a defense to a man named Agrippa. We'll get to these chapters as we continue. Uh, For our purposes, I just want you to see what Paul's testimony is. He's talking about his conversion. Acts 26, verse 12, he says, Paul, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. There is a phrase used there by Jesus to Paul that uh, we've heard before, but let's just talk about it for a moment. When Jesus says to Saul, is it hard for you to kick against the goads. And that's the point that underscores, that's the verse that underscores this first point, that life in rebellion against God is difficult. It's hard. Um, In Paul's day, this statement would have been readily understood. But anybody been with uh, a set of oxen this weekend? Anybody? Anybody been on a plow? No. All right. So so John Deere and the like have replaced the oxes. So, so this statement, is it hard for you to kick against the goads, uh, its meaning might be a little bit lost on us. So what does it mean to kick against the goads? I think we got a picture. So, so uh, this is a little picture. Uh, no, I didn't draw this picture, but, but it gets to the point there. You see you've got a couple of oxen, and they're yoked up, and they're going to plow the field, right? And what you have there is the uh, farmer who's got, holding in his hand, uh, a goad, right? Now, oxen, again, I'm not speaking from experience. This is all things I've read in books, all right? My understanding is that oxen can be stubborn. Sometimes you'll, you, so, so what the goad is, that's the instrument in his hand, and you'd kind of prick against their hind legs to get them to move, to get them to go. We, we've got to plow this field so we can plant our crops, so we can have food to eat. So this is no small matter, right? If we're going to survive, we've got to get these ox to, to, to go, right? And so you'd get these goats. And sometimes the oxen would get really, really stubborn, right? And so the, the farmer goading them on, and they'd begin to kick. Now, what would happen, and go to the next picture, the, uh, another picture of the goats, all right? That's the goat. Usually an eight-foot-long a uh, piece of wood sharpened on one end, right? And, uh, and then you ki- so, so you just think, what would happen if you kicked against that instrument? The more you kick against it, the more difficult it would become, right? Your legs would begin to get scraped up, and, 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 and you're getting prodded, getting prodded, getting prodded. The oxen, no, 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 I'm not going to go. I'm going to stand here, or I'm going to go in that direction. And so this is a metaphor that Jesus is using to say, this is what your life is like right now, Saul. I'm telling you, you need to go in this direction. And you're kicking against me, right? You're kicking against. Is it hard for you? Or actually, it's more of a statement, isn't it? It is hard for you. And can I just co-opt Jesus' statement 
and lay it down before you, it's hard for you. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. If you, if you understand what Jesus is saying now, who's holding the goad? God is. God's trying to direct you. God's trying. Now, now let's zoom out a little bit. What's God like? He's holy and just and merciful and compassionate and kind. He knows more than you do. He's got insight that you don't possess. And when he's telling you to go this way, how foolish is it that we'd say, no, I'm going to kick and I'm going to kick and I'm going to kick and I'm going to kick. It's hard for us to kick against the goads. Now, in this context, he's referring to Saul's strong and stubborn and violent opposition to him, to the gospel, to Christ. And you take the goad picture, Dale. But this give you a couple of observations of what a person's like as they kick against the goads. We're speaking about Saul, but I also invite you to examine your own heart. First of all, we revealed in the scripture that Saul was consumed with jealousy. He's a jealous-hearted person. In fact, it's probably jealousy that fuels the anger. We'll talk more about anger in a moment because it's another aspect of it. He's just incredibly jealous. It was eating him up. It was eating him up that so many of his countrymen were flocking to Christianity. I mean, we're talking about Saul of Tarsus, who's been to the best schools. In fact, he sat at Gamaliel, one of the great teachers of, its day, of, of the day. He sat at his feet. He's, he's earning these prestigious degrees, and all of his uh, teaching is being rejected, and it's consuming him with jealousy. I invite you to examine your own heart if there's jealousy running rampant in your heart. Another characteristic of Saul is he was, he was filled with anger. In fact, that might be the defining characteristic of his life. He's consumed with anger. And the more he gets angry, the harder he kicks against the goads. So let's think about it for a moment. Who is he kicking against, right? Now here is uh, one of the more helpful ways I've understood anger in my own life. Angry people are usually so very angry because... They think that they're the ones who actually hold the goads. Does it make sense? That's why some people get so angry is because they think they're the ones who have the authority to tell people where to, where to go, to tell people what to do, to tell people where to plow, when to move, what direction to go in. It's the solution, if you're someone who really wrestles with deep-rooted anger. The solution begins when we come to terms with the reality that we don't hold the goads. We don't have that authority. In fact, most angry people have reversed the metaphor. And angry people say, God, you get down here, take my yoke, and I'll tell you where to go and God's not like that friends we didn't make him in our image he made us in his but sometimes we get so angry because life is not going the way that we thought it should go circumstances aren't turning out the way we thought that they would and so Saul that's certainly true in his life he's so angry breathing murderous threats enraged, out of control, 
Saul approved of his execution. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragged off men and women. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And Saul was trying to go take a city in Damascus, but he couldn't control his own anger. And then his anger got so strong, the next characteristic we see of a man kicking against the goats is that he was prone to violence. His anger became so great, he's turned to violence. And violence is often the overflow on the outside of great deep-seated rooted anger on the inside. That's why uh, uh, the New Testament will go on to say, let all wrath and anger and malice be put away from you. Be kind to one another. Anybody, pop quiz, anybody know who said that? It's Ephesians chapter 4 written by this guy who knows how destructive anger had been in his own life. Prone to violence. Went to get those and bound them to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I punished them often in all the synagogues. Tried to make them blaspheme. What's behind that phrase? Tried to make them blaspheme. Sounds like torture, doesn't it? I'm going to physically punish them until they deny Jesus And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Jealousy, anger, even violence. These are the characteristics, friends, of those who are kicking against the goads. So let's do a hypothetical. If you, if you had all power and authority, how would you treat your worst enemy? If you really could, right? If you really could do whatever you wanted to do to your worst enemy, what would you do? How how will God treat Saul after Saul has stood there and applauded and approved and cheered on Stephen? Godly, spirit-filled Stephen, who as he's being persecuted, remember this, what does Jesus do? Jesus stands up, and Stephen with the face of an angel looks up and sees Jesus in glory, and the stones rain down on him, and there's Saul. He's holding everybody's coat. What will God do after Saul has stormed into homes and dragged out families as they're gathered to pray together. What will, Saul, uh, what will God do after Saul's coming to meetings like we're having right now and takes people and drags them out and throws them in prison? Point number one is that life lived in rebellion against God is hard. And friends, if that's where you are in your life this morning, that you're trying to go your own way, you're trying to say nobody's got authority over me, I'm not wearing anybody's yoke. Everybody in the room this morning is either wearing the yoke of slavery to sin or the yoke of following Christ. That's it. There's not some third option that you're going to create. That's it. Remember what Jesus said? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. How do you get weary and heavy laden? By trying to go your own way. Come unto me and I will give you, oh friends, here we go, the one word, The one thing we cannot get on our own, no matter how hard we try. Come unto me and I will give you, who knows the word? Rest. 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 You will, I will, no one will ever get true rest until they submit to Christ. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest rest for my yoke my way is gentle my yoke is easy my burden is light again underscoring the way where the life lived in rebellion against god is difficult 
Bible proclaims the way of the transgressor is hard. Why? Because you're trying to live in direct contradiction for how you were created. You're created to know God, to love God, to trust God, to believe God, to walk with God. So how's God going to treat Saul? Brings us to point number two. Very simple point, very important point. One, point number one, uh, uh, life lived in rebellion against God is difficult. Point number two, God extends grace to rebels. God extends grace to rebels. So here comes Saul, breathing his murderous threats. Can you kind of picture him on his way to Damascus? Full of anger, full of rage, ready to unleash violence when he gets to Damascus. And then Saul has come across people who are so unlike him, who do not live for their possessions. We've been studying Acts together, remember? Sold everything they had, give to anyone who has need. They, they don't adhere to his script of religious rule-keeping. And it just makes him angrier. Friends, God gives grace to goad kickers. Amen? So let's look at what God does here. Jesus shows up. Now, as he went on his way, <laughs> I love that phrase. Uh, Saul has no idea what's coming. I want to also uh, proclaim to you the truth of the scripture. As Saul stood before Jesus, so will you. It's just a matter of time. The Bible says everybody's going to stand before Jesus. Much better to come to him in faith in your life than to face him faithless upon your death. So what, is, what happens to Saul? So here we go. Uh, suddenly, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, here's in a moment, Saul's reckoning, I don't hold the goads. I, I'm not in control. There's something greater than me, powerful, than, more, much more powerful than me. And it throws him to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So give you a few things that God does with Saul is number one, he holds Saul to account. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, when God, uh, the most frequent thing God does when he shows up and speaks to people in the scripture is ask them, why do they do what they're doing? What are you doing where you are? God said to Elijah in the midst of the whirlwind, the still small voice, remember? Elijah's hiding. What are you doing where you are? And when he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, what does he say? Where are you? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, what gives God the right to hold us to account? That was a rhetorical question, right? Who gave God the right to hold us to account? You know who gave him that right? He gave it to himself. Uh, you can spend your whole life ignoring God, but he is not ignoring you. You can spend your whole life pretending he doesn't exist, but he knows you by name. Do you notice how he spoke to Saul? He didn't say, hey, you. Hey, you over there. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He holds Saul accountable for his actions. 
Are we able to reckon with this fact? God holds us to account. The very first lie in the garden was this. You eat of the forbidden fruit, you will not surely die. First lie in the garden was what? There's no judgment. There's no accountability. And friends, welcome to the United States in 2016. We want to believe that we can do whatever we want to do and nobody can hold us to account. That didn't work when Saul stood before the Lord. So one, he holds Saul to account. And secondly, he's, he shows Saul mercy. You obviously see displayed here the great power and authority of Christ. This bright light knocks him to the ground and he could have just smashed Saul. But that's not what he does. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. If you want to know what we truly deserve in our life, friends, you have to look at the cross and see what Jesus endures. That's what we deserve. And if you haven't gotten that, the only uh, reason for that is that you have likewise been shown so much mercy. You've been shown so much grace. He doesn't annihilate Saul, right? Saul's shown mercy. I really believe that Christian people should be the most grateful people on the planet. I think Christians should be the least likely to ever complain about anything. Do everything without grumbling or complaint. There we go, quoting converted Paul again. God's been so kind to you. He's shown you such compassion, shown you such patience, shown you such mercy. Jesus Christ took your sin on himself because he loves you. He took your place. He stood where you deserve to stand condemned. And Saul finally, for the first time in all this account of Acts, he does something right. He finally does something worthwhile. Saul asks the most important question a person can ask. You see what it is? He said, verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? You see the answer? First three words, I am Jesus. Who are you? I am Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, who set aside glory in heaven and came to the earth, born as a little baby. And you remember what they did with him? They laid him in a little manger in Bethlehem. I am Jesus. Jesus, you remember, who loves to hold the little children in his arms. Remember Jesus? He said, oh, no, no, don't bring those little kids around here. I've got more important things to do. And Jesus rebuked them and said, no, no, let the little ones come to me. And the Bible says he lifted up the little children in his hands and he blessed them. I am Jesus. Jesus, who went out of his way to confront face-to-face demon-possessed legion. Remember Legion? Cutting myself all night long. Legion. Legion consumed with darkness. Jesus steps, looks at that demon-possessed man, and the demons were scared out of their wits, right? What have you to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Jesus who restores Legion. Jesus who answered the disciples when they protested, hey, can you send the crowds away so they can go buy themselves something to eat? Jesus, who instead said, you give them something to eat. And with just a few fish and loaves, he just kept 
producing the food until they were all satisfied. That's who we're talking about. Jesus, who those religious, mean-spirited Pharisees threw down a woman caught in adultery by his feet. And Jesus said, whoever's got the, without sin, you cast the first stone. And then you hear all the stones, thump, 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 thump. Hey, but there's somebody there, right, who could have cast the first stone. His name's Jesus. He could have picked up the stone. But he says, I do not condemn you. As a matter of fact, he's not, he's not saying her adultery is okay um, by any stretch. He's saying, I'm going to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin against the holy God. That's Jesus. That's who we're talking about, friends. Do you know Jesus? Do you know who he is? Have you met him? Have you reckoned with his mercy towards you? Jesus, who stepped into Jairus' home. You remember Jairus? Ruler of the synagogue. This man of great influence and power until he was presented with a problem he couldn't solve. His 12-year-old daughter is dying. And Jairus stands on that shore after Jesus has healed Legion and Jesus is coming back across the sea and Jairus falls at his feet. Please, if you'll come to my house, you can heal my daughter before she dies. And Jesus is on his way with Jairus until a woman who has 12 years of bleeding reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. This is the Jesus we're talking about who can make the unclean clean again. And, and then those folks come from Jairus' house and said, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's already dead. An assumption there, right? Jesus can heal you unless you die, and then he's got no power and authority. But friends, Jesus says, let's go into the house. Walks into the little girl's room, and the Bible says he takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kumi, meaning little lamb, arise. And this dead girl, <gasps> breath back in her lungs, y'all. That's Jesus. That's who we're talking about. Jesus, who stood before the widow at Nain, as she marched out with her dead son to go to the cemetery, and Jesus stands in front of the funeral procession, is just like, where are you guys going? Oh, you're going to go to the grave? Not today. And says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak. Jesus, that's who we're talking about. Jesus, who sat with those stubborn, hard-hearted disciples who spend most of their time arguing about which of them is the greatest. Jesus, who rose up from the table, took off his outer robe, put a towel around his waist, and washed their feet. Jesus, who stayed up all night long praying in Gethsemane, asking for this cup of their sin to pass from him. But not my will be done, he said, but yours. Jesus, who stood silent as he's falsely accused. Jesus, who endured the scourging Pilate had planned that maybe if we'll scourge him, the crowds will settle down. They scourged him, the crowds didn't settle down. Jesus, who the crowds demanded be crucified. Jesus, who carried his own cross to Golgotha. Jesus, who prayed, Father, forgive them as they nail his arms and feet to the tree. Jesus, who comforts Mary as he suffers in agony. Jesus, who listened to, loved, and redeemed the dying thief hanging beside of him. Jesus, who with a loud voice gave up his own spirit laid down his life of his own accord. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus, who they put in the tomb, but he's just borrowing it for a little while because this is the same Jesus. The Gospels declare 
the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. But when they got there, the stones rolled away. Jesus, who walked out of the grave. Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven on earth has been given. Jesus, Acts 4.12, in whose name is salvation and no one else. Jesus, who the disciples watched as he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Jesus, who sent the Holy Spirit to fill his people so that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus, Saul, whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. So can I just tell it and put it to you in these terms? Friends, the one who holds the goad, those hands that hold the goad, have scars in them. The one who tells you we need to go this way is the one who went the way you should have gone and was crucified for your sins. Friends, don't you see? It's so foolish to kick against the one who suffered and bled and died and was crucified for you. Jesus gives grace to goad kickers. Jesus gives grace to those who do not recognize his authority. If you're in Acts, just flip over one book to Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Or 6 through 11. I always do that, don't I? I'm going to go to one verse and then we'll skip back up. I love these words. Hey, can I just share them with you? Can you just listen to them? Here's what the Bible says. For while we, us, while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely give his life for a righteous person, but for a good person one may dare even to die. But God, if, friends, if you want to know how God's shown love for you, this is the Bible's answer. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says it right there, doesn't it? Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Romans. Romans, written by Paul, he understood this. When Saul kicked against the goads, y'all, God did not kick back. Instead, instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Point number one, life lived in rebellion against God is hard. Point number two. God extends grace to rebels. And point number three, God's grace transforms rebels into joyful servants. To joyful servants. <laughs> I, love, uh, I, I love this statement. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. What a moment that must have been for Saul. When he came to terms with this, everything, and I mean, I'm not exaggerating, everything he believed and lived for was wrong. Everything. Everything he lived for was wrong. And God 
confronts him, holds him to account, but then offers him grace. Rise. You see it? But rise. What's that mean? It means I'm not going to destroy you. You're going to be able to to rise. I'm going to let you up. I'm going to let you stand back up again. And enter the city. And you will be told what to do. (laughs) Now, he doesn't tell them everything at once. Don't tell him everything at once. Well, what, what's, 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 what's God saying? I got the goad, brother. So you thought you had it. I've got it. You're going to go. Just go to the city. All I'm going to ask you to do, just go into the city. You go on up to Damascus, this place that you thought you were going to come and, and, and be so violent. No, no. You're going to go there. And for the first time, y'all, the first time, Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. I told you that Luke sees the irony. When his eyes could work, he couldn't see anything. Now when his eyes don't work, he can see. You know what I'm saying? First time in his life, he really see. He really sees that I don't hold the goad. Really sees that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. And, And for the first time, he actually does what he's told to in his book The Reason for God Tim Keller puts it this way I should I hear it I think he says it well the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me yet I am so loved that Jesus was willing to die for me This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. And I think that's what's happening in Saul's life for those three days. He can't see two things happening, deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. Keller goes on to write, it undermines, the gospel undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not need to think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. That's going to be the rest of Paul's life, isn't it? The rest of his life, he's not thinking about himself. He only thinks of others, and he thinks of Christ. When God finds a rebel, he doesn't just discard of Saul. He loves him. He loves to change people. Would you... In your own life, would you be willing to ask the same question Saul asked? Who are are you? An honest question God never (laughs) leaves unanswered. Jesus answered him. And, And now, do you see it, friends? Saul asked that question, who are you, Lord? And now Saul's going to spend the rest of his life proclaiming the answer to that question. We'll close hearing from Paul again, one of his last letters. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you have a Bible, start flipping, uh, if you're an axe, start flipping left to 1 Timothy chapter 1.
Life in rebellion against God is difficult. It'll never be fulfilling. It'll only prove frustrating in the end. You'll either, if you're living in rebellion against God, you'll either end up really angry or, or you'll end up just with an unending pursuit of false pleasures. That's going to go one, of the, one way or the other. But God offers grace to rebels. And God's grace is stronger than the hardest heart. And that grace transforms rebels into joyful servants. Hear the way Paul says it. He says it best. Now, now remember, as we read these, who Paul had been, what God had done, and these are his words. I thank him, 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has given me Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You see it? Friends, if you think God's appointed to your service, you've got it upside down. He appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. A wonderful statement. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Men. So two concluding questions, applications, if you will. First of all, we see very clearly that Paul never got over it. You know what I mean? He never got over what God had done for him. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you've submitted to his lordship. Is there any sense that, I don't know if getting over it's the right way, but you just kind of moved, moved on or it's not as precious to you as it once was? Right? I mean, for the rest of his life, for the rest of his life, Paul never said, well, yeah, I mean, that was a little phase I went through. No, he'd seen Christ, and it transformed his life. I guess that's what I'm trying to ask you. Have you truly been transformed by the grace of God? And it has an effect and ramifications on every part of your life. And secondly, for those who are here and you live in rebellion, You've never submitted to Christ. I just tell you with great clarity, there's going to come a moment where you are going to stand before him. And whatever excuses or whatever rationales that you might come up with, or, hey, we live in days they won't believe these things anymore. Who is he? And I just want you to know, friends, his goads are for your good. And if if you're listening to him, do you know where he's trying to goad you to ultimately? He's trying to goad you to the cross so that you can see who he really is and what he really has done. You are going to give an account to him of what you've done with your life. What are you doing where you are? Why are you doing such and such? But I want you to see very clearly, I received mercy. 
that Jesus would display perfect patience. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. The invitation for you, of course, is to be saved, to come to Christ, to not kick against him, but to understand he has been crucified for you. So let's stand together and we'll pray together. Offer you during this time of invitation to respond to God in a way that he may lead you to do, whether that's to sing a glorious praise unto him, to kneel and pray and seek his face. As a pastor, if there's a burden on your heart, I'm going to stand right here at the front and be glad to pray and speak with you. Let's pray together. Thank you for grace. It's by grace you are saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, thank you that when we kick against the goads, you don't kick us back. That what you've done first is that you've offered your life in substitute for us, Lord Jesus. We do recognize clearly from your word, we will give an account of our lives to you. You're our creator, and the creator calls his creation to account. Father, I pray that we also see the one to whom we will give account is the one who was crucified for us. Father, would you lead this invitation time? Just resonate it by your word and through your spirit that the grace of God is strong enough to transform the hardest heart. In Jesus' name.